0: and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is coming to us from Mexico City. Matt McManus is Professor of Politics and International Relations at Tech de Monterrey in DF. And he is about to publish Three books, the titles of two of which I have here, one is called Making Human Dignity Central to International Human Rights Law. And the second is a collection of essays called What is Postmodern Conservatism? Essays on Our Hugely Tremendous Time, which will be published with zero books. And could you just give me the title of the third uh, book, Matt? Of
1: course. Uh, so The What is Postmodern Conservatism book uh, for Zero is uh, a bit more of a kind of uh, user-friendly guide to the whole topic. Uh, It's a little bit more colloquial. Uh, The the third book that I have coming out is The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism for Palgrave Macmillan, which is more of a traditional academic monograph, lots of footnotes, uh, esoteric asides, that kind of stuff.
0: Okay, great. Thank you, Matt. And Matt is also a regular contributor to ARIU magazine, where he writes about conservative thought and also a little bit about um, left-wing thought, too, about Rawlsian liberalism and about the rise of what Matt calls the engaged left. So, Matt, maybe you could start by telling us why you became particularly interested in the history of conservative thought.
1: Well, actually, that, that was kind of more personal uh, rather than political. So. I had a bit of an odd upbringing uh, where I went to art school through high school. Uh, my father was involved in human rights. And so I kind of was brought up uh, from a family perspective in this very progressive atmosphere. But the town that I grew up in, Sitzville, most of my friends and buddies were pretty conservative guys. They uh, you know, didn't like change very much. And we'd often get into arguments about this or that topic and usually nothing that was too extreme. So... I always had one of one foot uh, in each camp, as it were. Uh, and as I was going through my PhD, uh, what I noticed is that a lot of leftists, like myself, don't really actually take conservatism all that seriously. Uh, there's a tendency of most leftists to direct their critical energies against other forms of leftism that they don't necessarily approve of. Uh, you know, Barack Obama had this kind of comment about leftists always firing uh, inwardly at one another rather than directing it outwardly. Uh, so what I just thought was, well, I think I'd actually be more interested in commenting on an ideological conception that I actually disagree with rather than just focusing on these fairly nuanced technical debates about whether or not you know, Rawlsian liberalism or Marxist uh, communism are the better ways to go about realizing a progressive project.
0: Great, thanks. That that's It's a very refreshing approach, I think. So how would you, how would you characterize classic conservative thought? Let's say conservative thought uh, of the kind that you see in Burke's um, reflections on the revolution in France um, and his essay on the beautiful and sublime. Um, that kind of classic conservative tradition, what characterizes it? Can you summarize a little bit for us?
1: Of course. Well, one of the, the misconceptions about the conservative tradition that I think are prevalent today Uh, and you see people like Ben Shapiro propagate this myth, is that conservatism is about seeing the world the way that it is uh, and be more fact-oriented than feeling-oriented. And, of course, people like Edmund Burke or Joseph de Maistre or uh, Michael Oakeshott would react very strongly against this way of kind of caricaturing uh, conservatism because Burke, his primary insight to me, uh, was the argument that actually human reason plays a fairly minor role, uh, both in guiding our understanding of how the world is uh, and in motivating our action. So in his essay on the sublime and beautiful, he consistently points out that feeling, rather than reason is actually at the basis of most human values uh, and of uh, most of our ways of apprehending the world. And this carries forward into his political conception, where Burke uh, and his descendants will consistently emphasize that Human reason is very, very limited. And this, of course, leads to a skepticism about attempts to reform society in too dramatic a way in accord with some perfectionist scheme, uh, which is just going to resolve all of our problems. Uh, And this doesn't mean that good or open-minded variants of conservatism are inherently hostile to all change. Uh, Sometimes, of course, you need to conserve in order to preserve, or sorry, to change in order to preserve. Uh, But it does mean they're going to say that you should always try to change things with one eye on the past. Recognizing that a lot of people have strong emotional attachments to the way things have been done before, uh, and acknowledging the value uh, of those sentences.
0: Yeah, Burke talks a lot, as as I recall. It's been years since I read Burke, but um, about the kind of um, the value of cumulative human wisdom, i.e., the wisdom of many people over centuries, that has organically led to things developing the way that they have developed, as opposed to um, the uh, faith in the rationality of individuals, of reformers and idealists who've come up with schemes and utopias and ideas and new structures. Because we we might feel that we have a kind of new rational view of how society should be organized, but we are probably swayed by our own emotions and prejudices in that. Um, We're much less, each individual is much less clear-sighted than we would think. And so therefore we should be cautious about changing traditions that have grown up over many generations. So it's a kind of idea of group wisdom.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the Israeli philosopher Yaron Pazzoni puts it nicely when he calls it a kind of historical empiricism, uh, where rather than trying to rationally reconceive of how the world is in your head, uh, and then saying that these are the abstract moral principles that all individuals should realize, uh, and the world that we live in doesn't really conform to them, so the world needs to be reconstructed uh, on the basis of these rational principles, you instead look uh like actual practices and belief systems that people have, and you try to, as you put it, see the inherent wisdom uh, that's located in those practices. And sometimes what you might actually find is that these aren't really based on any kind of reasonable suppositions uh, or reasonable analysis, is a better way to put it. Um, but nonetheless, they serve an important purpose in providing meaning and stability for people's lives and trying to deconstruct that too virulently will ultimately only lead to chaos and violence, uh, because most people don't actually sit there and try to rationally reconstruct the world in their head and then implement uh, some scheme to try to bring uh, the world as it is into accord with their vision of how it should be.
0: Mm. So how has how how has that changed over? You talk about a postmodern period, that we're living in postmodernity. And I think that you're not, when you talk about that, you're not specifically talking about the postmodernist thinkers of the 70s and 80s, the classic postmodernists like Foucault and Lukács and Derrida, etc. Um, but you are talking more about a condition of modern life? Could you tell me what characterizes for you that post-modernity that you see, uh, post-modern conservatism, as you call it, as growing out of, as being a reaction to? Sure, of course. So
1: um, part of this is drawn from the analysis of Max Weber, uh, the famous German sociologist, who commented on how the way that many people live has fundamentally changed uh, in modernity, and I'll add also post-modernity. Uh, So he kind of stresses in a very conservative manner uh, that Burke probably would have liked that once upon a time, most people led lives that were characterized by a huge amount of scarcity, uh, and their political organizations were extremely hierarchical, but nonetheless they were quite stable. So you knew who you were, uh, you knew what your role in the social hierarchy was going to be, and there weren't really a lot of opportunities to question that, uh, and at the same time to destabilize. Uh, So kind of one of the examples he gives is, of course, uh, if you're the son of a blacksmith in southern Germany, circa the 16th century, you pretty much know how your life is going to go. Uh, You're eventually going to become a blacksmith. You're going to marry uh, the person who lives in a store. You're going to have a family. You're going to go to the same church that your parents did. Uh, You're going to pay your taxes to the same kind of family. And everything is more or less going to go on as it has for centuries. Uh, And, of course, under modernity, what he says is, a lot of these structures and traditions and practices uh, that provided this kind of stability have been broken down under the influence of a lot of processes. Uh, economic processes, technological processes, sociopolitical processes. And I see post-modernity uh, as a continuation of this, pro- of this destabilization. Uh, and in some ways it's a good thing, because post-modern culture allows people a lot of new ways to understand who they are, to manipulate their identity, to assume a lot of different uh, kind of value systems over the course of their lives and decide which one they actually like. Um, but the downside to this, of course, is the sense that our lives are a lot more unstable than they were before in almost any respect you can think of. Uh, and you could just look at the number of people who leave home or who change their religious belief systems uh, or who adopt different value systems over the course of their lives or who change their behavior in various different technological mediums, there's a huge number of examples we could point to of this destabilization.
0: It's partly social mobility and partly geographical mobility. And also um, the fact that we are n- not quite so bound to ideological systems um, that, um, that gives us more freedom, but also uh, causes an anxiety around identity. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, think about um, this kind of German peasant who wants to be a blacksmith in the 16th century. Well, now transport him up until the early 20th century, right? And all of a sudden he finds out that he can no longer be a blacksmith because that job is outdated. So instead he needs to move to a major metropolis uh, in order to get a job in a new industry. Uh, So he leaves his home, his family, and all that kind of stuff, moves to the major metropolis, and there he's exposed to Immigrants for the first time. He's exposed to new ideological ideas, whether it's communism, uh, or socialism or reactionary, uh, fanaticism, uh, that he'd never heard of before. All of this offers a great deal more freedom, uh, to our German blacksmith, uh, than would have been available to him had he just stayed home, uh, and lived in the 16th century. But it's also really anxiety-inducing and you compare this kind of little fable of the 20th century to what happens now in the 21st century, I think you can see how much further along the road that we've gone. Uh, you know, nowadays, particularly with technological mediums, there's all kinds of different thing, uh, ideas and identities that I'm, I'm potentially exposed to and that I'm particularly inhabiting uh, at any given time. So I might act like a different person on Facebook than I would when I'm interacting with my wife. Uh, I might interact with people uh, in the university or in an urban setting uh, where I am regularly than I would if I happen to go back to my hometown of Stittsville. Uh, and all of these different identities and different practices that I happen to engage with uh, allow me a lot more opportunity to shape who it is that I want to be. Uh, but it can also lead to a lot more questions, of course, about who I am deep down inside. And, of course, that's a really anxiety-inducing experience, I can put it.
0: Yeah, it's also, I mean, um, globalization also leads to an e- economic insecurities and anxieties about, about the future. I'm going to quote from one of your articles here. You say that globalization and automation have produced greater precarity in many industries, leading many to expect, rightly or wrongly, a lower standard of living than their parents. It has also resulted in many communities decaying as jobs move overseas or are replaced by cheaper migrant labor and machines. This may not bother the cosmopolitan anywheres who are capable of uprooting and adapting to the the neoliberal economy, but produces profound understandable anxieties on the part of the somewheres who see their communities decline or transform unrecognizably.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that I talk about, uh, especially in the major book, the one being released for Palgrave Macmillan, is how, especially in the 1980s, uh, with the introduction of neoliberalization, a lot of the uh, trends that destabilized our identity became exacerbated by a new sense of economic precarity uh, and economic competition. So if you look at the writings of neoliberal authors like uh, Hayek or Milton Friedman, one of the arguments they consistently put forward is, yeah, the kind of policies that we want to implement are going to lead to greater inequality. Uh, they might very well lead to greater job precarity. They might even lead to uh, a kind of de-emphasis on democracy. But people will accept that because their quality of life will continuously improve. You know, neoliberal policies will produce so much wealth, so much affluence, so many new commodities uh, that people won't necessarily mind all of these trends. Uh, And what I think we're recognizing right now is actually that a lot of people do find a lot of this problematic. Uh, They don't necessarily care if, or they do care, they aren't necessarily indifferent to the fact that their quality of life might be improving in some metrics if inequality is becoming so stark uh, that they feel the system is fundamentally unfair. They won't necessarily see having a lot of different job opportunities as a great thing uh, if they know that they're only going to be inhabiting one of those jobs for a month or two before they have to go out and look for another contract right after them. So the kind of economic situation uh, we find ourselves in right now is very different than what people were led to expect, certainly in the 1950s, uh, let alone before that in the 19th century. And I think it's no surprise that we're seeing this substantial backlash against that now, including from conservative quarters. Um, and a lot of people didn't necessarily expect that, and I think they should have, Um, Because, of course, neoliberalization is a very radical change the way many people have lived and have been taught to expect to live uh, for many centuries, even under normal capitalist conditions.
0: Can you tell me more about the changes that this has led to within conservative thought?
1: Of course. Uh, So one of the points that I emphasize is a lot of people nowadays talk a lot about identity politics, and they almost always affiliate it with the left. Right? Uh, left-wing identity politics, particularly on university campuses, uh, occasionally in the digital sphere, and so on and so forth. You know the stuff I'm talking about, right?
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that I thought was odd uh, about this kind of conflation of identity politics with the left is, of course, identity has always been a very, very pronounced concern uh, for many conservatives going back to first. Uh, in many ways, identity has actually been a more prominent concern for conservatives than it has been for progressives. Uh, since many progressives actually really embraced modernization and this idea that your identity is now going to be destabilized in some way because the hierarchies that held you back are going to be gone, and now you can feel free to create yourself as whoever it is that you really want to be uh, or whoever it is that you really are if you happen to be an essentialist. And so what you see now, I think, uh, under the conditions of postmodern culture, where our sense of identity is really being destabilized, is to turn back to an older kind of conservatism, uh, where concerns about identity were really promised. Uh, and you find this in the work of Evan Burke and Michael Oakeshott uh, and many others. Uh, and the kind of position of a lot of these postmodern conservatives uh, who kind of embrace identity politics is that the traditional hierarchies and social systems that gave a lot of stability to who we thought we are uh, are under attack. And what we need to do is seize political power in order to retrench our authority and provide a new sense of stability for these identities that we affiliate. Uh and there's a lot of different identities that fall into this category. Uh you know, sometimes people are concerned about the decline of whiteness uh if they happen to have adhere to a very racist and reactionary war variant of postmodern conservatism. Uh sometimes they're concerned about maleness uh if they feel like um, Postmodernity has eroded the traditional authority of masculinity. Uh, sometimes they're concerned about ethnic identity. There's a whole smorgasbord of uh, different identities that postmodern conservatives are concerned about that I discuss in my books.
0: Yes, I've been very struck actually um, by a lot of the um, arguments made by those who fear excessive immigration, um, and um so, for example, um let's say somebody is fearful that in the u k to take a British example, you'll be accepting as immigrants a very conservative Muslim family who believe that ahmadis are uh, are an abomination and um should be shunned and even violence against Ahmadis or killing of Ahmadis can be morally justified because they're blasphemers against Islam. So you can imagine a, a Pakistani family who might hold that belief. Um, and I I can completely understand how, why people would not want someone who held a belief like that from becoming a British citizen, for example, but my argument for for not wanting them to become a citizen would be that that belief is wrong, that that is a very pernicious, illiberal, um, prejudiced, dangerous belief. Whereas the argument that I hear all the time from conservatives is that is a belief that is incompatible with British values. And I find that a very arbitrary attitude, that surely beliefs and values should be are uh, evaluated on their own merits rather than whether or not they are typically British. Am, am I making sense here? Oh,
1: absolutely. And I mean, this goes back to our initial comment about the emotional roots of a lot of conservative inclinations, right? Uh, and this is something that Burke, of course, stressed that a lot of the identities and practices and traditions that people affiliate with, uh, according to conservatives, they don't affiliate with because they have some rational argument for them. Uh, they do it because this is historically the way things have been for a long time. They provide a lot of meaning to people's life. Uh, and the identities affiliated with those practices, traditions, and beliefs uh, are ones that individuals hold uh, to uh, to try to understand who they themselves are. And so it's no surprise uh, when you're confronted with these figures that the primary reaction isn't a reasonable one, uh, where you're actually trying to assess whether this practice is consistent uh, with a universalistic system uh, like liberalism. It's an emotional reaction that there's something odd about this and I just don't want it here because I see it as being inconsistent uh, with the kind of values and practices and traditions and identities that I emotionally affiliate
0: with. Yeah, I find that this also all the time with people who argue that Enlightenment values, liberalism, secularism, etc., are all predicated on the church or even the kind of Catholic church. And, you know, literally, enlightenment values were centered, um, among other things, were centered on questioning authority. And the enlightenment became possible. When the power of the church was weakened, and it became possible, primarily in those countries where the power of the church was most weakened, um, there's a reason why the Enlightenment happened largely in places like the UK and not in Spain and Portugal, for example. But there is this kind of this wish to to cling to those identities. Um, well, everything good must have come out of Judeo Christianity, even things that arose in direct opposition to, um, uh, Judeo Christianity and, and Judeo Christian values and religious values and authorities. Um, even those must somehow have been dependent on them. Um, and as somebody who's not from a Judeo Christian tradition, this, I find this extremely frustrating and irrational.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's two things I'd like to say to this. I mean, one of the points that I'd like to make is um, that I do think, and this gets to my point about the engaged left, that one thing that conservatives have always been better at playing to uh, than progressives like myself or like yourself uh, is the question of meaning in people's lives. Um, Again, the... Attitude of a lot of progressive philosophies has always been that what we want to do is strip away irrational prejudices and traditions and so on and so forth so you can feel free to create your identity and along the lines that you yourself uh, happen to choose without those being determined uh, by social hierarchies and traditions and so on and so forth. And I'm still very, very uh, attached to this progressive outlook. Uh, but one of the things that I think conservatives have been better at playing to is the fact that well, this can produce a huge amount of anxiety uh, for a lot of people because then they no longer know who they are and they can't really fit themselves into society in as firmly a, a way uh, as they would have been able to before. So I think one of the tasks of a progressive politics is to try to show uh, how a more individualistic, rational way of apprehending the world can actually provide the same sense of meaning for many people that they got through their religious affiliations uh, their cultural affiliations, and so on and so forth, uh, beforehand. And the other point that I wanted to make, uh, kind of touching on what you're saying, is, again, uh, for a conservative, the reason why people are attached to things like uh, religious traditions uh, isn't necessarily because they have a rational uh, way of reconstructing those in their mind. It's because, precisely because they provide a sense of meaning and identity for people that they can't get from anywhere else. Uh, and so while I'm sympathetic, of course, to eroding the power of those institutions, we do need to be cognizant that something needs to replace them. Uh, otherwise, people are simply going to feel uh, isolated and anomic, and of course they might very well turn to reactionary groups like postmodern conservatism uh, rather than advancing the cause of progressivism, as I would want to see.
0: mm a lot of the criticisms that you have of the right, I've noticed, sound very, very similar to criticisms that I hear people making of the left when you're talking about the postmodern postmodern right or the postmodern conservative ideology. For example, let me quote a couple of things. Um, you say that in practice, postmodern conservatives also tend to engage in hyper-partisan displays of posturing politics as, as a kind of competitive entertainment. And that—that that, I think that is slightly different from th- the critiques that people have of the woke left, that my sense of the social justice left, the ultra-woke as I sometimes call them, th- that kind of fringe of the left whether whether or not it's a larger or smaller proportion of the left is something we didn't get into, but it's that edge, as it were, of the left, that's kind of stripe, that on the left there is very often a sense of sincerity, sometimes kind of over sincerity, a holier-than-thou preachiness, etc. But on the right i find that there is a lot of right wing politics and not just far or alt right politics is feels like a kind of trolling um that it's it feels like a kind of like a game you know the typical manifestation of that is all those ben shapiro videos which have been titled by fans on youtube where ben shapiro um Kidnaps SJW students, holds her hostage, tor- rapes and tortures her, and eviscerates her and eats her corpse you know, with facts and logic, that, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I've been on the receiving end of a few of those comments myself, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, it's kind of hyper antagonistic, uh, almost sport like mentality and rhetoric uh, that's sometimes associated uh, with the right. Yeah.
0: And it's it's it feels like a response to this meme that the left are overly sensitive and snowflakey. It feels like it's come out of this culture of concerns about student fragility, which I think are very are can be are very valid concerns when they're expressed in a more serious way, obviously, that I do think that there is a, a culture and ethics of victimhood in some sectors of the left, and a kind of glorification of fragility as something to be celebrated and aimed for and wallowed in. And the less serious parts of the right have resorted to this sort of glorification of thuggish bullying, let's say, in response. Is that how it feels to, is that how some of that right-wing rhetoric feels to you
1: yeah absolutely i think the point that you made initially about the difference tonal difference i should say between uh, left and right uh discourse is actually really apt uh, particularly the discourses around identity politics and i think it's because the mentality of people who practice identity politics on the left uh, as you pointed out is more about trying to include what they consider to be previously marginalized groups uh within the social sphere So there is this kind of moralistic quality, uh, to the rhetoric, uh, that as you mentioned, a lot of people find annoying, puritanical, uh, snowflakey, uh, as the right will call it. Uh, whereas on the political right, or the less serious versions of the political right, what you have instead is a more competitive ethos, uh, where the left is seen as somebody that you need to just get rid of. Uh, it's not about trying to include other voices into, in the discussion. Uh, what it's about is precluding, uh, other groups from participating, at least in the way that they have. Right. So you see a lot of this very hyper antagonistic rhetoric invoked. Like you said, Ben Shapiro is probably the most famous example, uh, where if you go and you type in his name on YouTube, the very first thing you'll get is, you know, Ben Shapiro destroys, uh, with facts and logic, uh, or he just ripped apart the argument of some 18 year old girl on a set California campus, which is a credible accomplishment to be sure. Uh, <laughs> And, yeah, I mean, I think, again, it comes back to the ethos uh, that underpins a lot of contemporary postmodern conservatism, where it's really about trying to prevent other people from participating uh, in political discourse. And, of course, uh, that leads to a certain kind of antagonistic and competitive politics, uh, which in some cases can become so extreme that some postmodern conservatives will even have a zero-sum mentality uh, to the whole – Political system, and you see this, of course, that some of the people will say things like, "Well, even if we lose, uh, we should do whatever it takes to gain power, regardless. Even if an election was held uh, and we legitimately lost under the parameters uh, of the electoral system." I mean, you saw this with Donald Trump saying, of course, you know, in the election 2016, a lot of supporters agreed. You know, even if I lost, I'm not necessarily going to concede defeat. I'm going to contest it because, of course, the left must have cheated in some way, shape, or form, and if it turned out that I was not elected president, Uh, you see that kind of rhetoric carried on for now, right? This very zero-sum mentality to politics.
0: I think this is also, this is actually, so we were uh, talking earlier about the facts, facts don't care about your feelings mantra of Ben Shapiro and how ironic it is that he has that motto or pinned tweet on his Twitter or whatever it is, since so much of his politics is based around feelings. Is based yeah. around people's loyalty towards what they feel is their culture, and towards very amorphous things like the United States as a nation, Judaism in his case, or Judeo-Christian values, etc. And it it is very much a politics of feelings. But where I think the where I think the right, and I disagree with him on this, I think it's an extremely simplistic and I think it's an extremely simplistic view, but I think that that view comes from a kind of Hobbesian pessimism about human nature. So yeah. the fact, the, the accusation is always that on the left, we believe that this is the right's caricature accusation that humans are basically good and we are basically willing to help each other and on the right, the feeling is, no, we are basically extremely selfish and greedy, and so we should set up a system that acknowledges that. So I, get, I guess also kind of Mandevillian notion of economics, um, that capitalism is about taking everybody, each individual person's greed and desire to earn money, and allowing that to generate wealth for the whole system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that historically conservatism certainly has been a more, shall we say, pessimistic uh, philosophy than the various forms of progressivism uh, that it's usually reacting against uh, or competition with. Now, this isn't true ubiquitously across the board. Uh, for instance, libertarianism would be a very optimistic uh, political outlook, and it's typically associated with the political right rather than the political left. Uh, and by contrast, you have figures like Theodore Adorno or Max Horkheimer on the political left uh, who certainly outdo any conservatives in their pessimistic outlook. Uh, but I think generally speaking, and Corey Robin expresses this point really nicely in his book, The Reactionary Mind, uh, and i enough, Roger Scruton agrees with him, uh, which is that a lot of conservativism is primarily about caution. And caution in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, uh, but it can lead you to be very, very, anti- adopt a very antagonistic approach to change, uh, because of course, change signifies a certain amount of instability, and it's a lack of predictability, and many conservatives find that more challenging to deal with, uh, than some progressives might, for instance. And, like I said, in and of itself, it's not necessarily a bad thing to be cautious, but it can be very problematic if a proper sense of caution transforms into fear, Uh, or into manic paranoia, if you want, which is what I think you see here on the postmodern right, with the sense that every group in society and their allies outside of it are trying to attack them and destabilize, uh, the social, like the social system. And this is where we really have to question, as you pointed out, whether or not conservatism actually is a realistic philosophy. Because of this more reactionary moment, it's not actually apprehending the world the way it really is so much as apprehending it through the lens of its various uh, paranoias and anxieties and so on.
0: I, Since you brought up Trump there briefly, I wanted to ask, do you consider Trump to be a conservative? And in what sense could he be seen as part of a conservative tradition?
1: No, absolutely. I mean, he's a difficult figure to place, in part because I don't think he personally holds to any firm ideological commitments. I imagine that in many senses he saw that there was a kind of niche audience within the right uh, in the United States of America, and that it can cater to that and use that and exploit that uh, either for money and publicity or ultimately for political power. If you're talking about Trumpism as a kind of doctrine that's emerged around uh, the President since then, I think you can fit that in the conservative tradition, uh, but again, in a very specific kind of conservative tradition, not one that's focused, for instance, on Free markets certainly not the more libertarian wings that you sometimes think about when you uh, imagine the conservative tradition. Trumpism fits nicely into a more traditionalist uh, variant of conservatism, which is focused on identity, social stability, and again a very cautious outlook uh, our surrounding change. And you can see that in a lot of the kind of policies that Trump and Trumpism put forward. You know whether it's literally building a wall to keep people out, uh, of course trying to put uh, limitations on the number of Muslims or foreigners uh, who aren't welcome into the country. Uh, you can also see that even in economic policy, which is about insulating the United States from the influence of the global economy that it did so much to shape back through the 1950s to the 1980s. So I do think, yes, it fits in the conservative tradition as long as we understand the conservative tradition as a multifaceted one uh, where Trumpism more organically connects with certain strands than others.
0: Mm. It does seem to me that there is an inherent contradiction between um, the family values that are so dear to so many conservatives mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. in particular. I don't, I don't think that's a big strand in the U.K. Here in Argentina, it's also a a large strand of conservatism. Yeah, same like, in Mexico. Uh, the influence of the Catholic Church. Abortion is still illegal here, um, except in cases of rape or. Um, when the mother's life is endangered, so we have a more socially conservative right than in the UK. In the UK, I would say it's not it's it's not such a huge part of the right. Um, but it seems that this sort of dog eat dog, completely free market, unrestrained capitalist ideal um, mitigates against the possibility of a traditional family structure with one breadwinner and, you know, the family house and the apple pie and the picket fence. All of those things are based on a degree of economic security.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly enough, some variants of postmodern conservatism, particularly in Eastern Europe, have started to acknowledge this tension. And the way they try to rectify it is actually by adopting so surprisingly left-wing economic policies to try to encourage people, uh, to have more children, uh, and to focus more attention on the family rather than just on their work life. Uh, so for instance, you can look at Poland, uh, which is, uh, run by a right-wing populist party at the moment. Uh, they've lowered the age of retirement. They've offered a huge number of stipends for various kinds of social activities. Uh, or in Hungary, uh, they're offering various monies in order for people to have more children. And it wouldn't necessarily surprise me if gradually uh, you started to see a movement towards this in the United States. In fact, I recently saw calls by people like Tucker Carlson for the Republicans to become more of a, quote, workers' party uh, that emphasizes family values and social conservatism by providing a certain safety net uh, that most Republicans, even a generation ago, would have thought was hideously extravagant. So there's quite an interesting shift going on there as more and more conservatives start to acknowledge the tension that you're talking about right there. And interestingly enough, a lot of them seem to be opting for social conservatism with a moderate, and I stress the word moderate, degree of left-wing economic policies to try to focus people more on the family and the community.
0: Right. I mean, I've noticed some people on the far right um, adopting very left-wing social policies. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they're not, they are... um, I feel that this is—it's a classic Christopher Hitchens thing um, that a um, uh, an what is it that he says—a danger or um, a a weakness ignored by the left is an opportunity that will be seized upon by the right. Absolutely, um, because the left has become uh, some some segments of the left not. Not my left, not on my watch, um, but some segments of the left have become so obsessed by identity and it have become, uh, become enthralled to certain narratives that privilege race and sex, sexuality, and those things over class to such a degree that economics no longer seems to matter to them. Mm-hmm. And so some people on the far right have kind of tried to plug that gap and with an identity politics of their own which isn't an identity politics of a kind of white working class and it's really it's um it's very contradictory because there's nothing particularly white about the working class being working class or being poor is not connected with a particular skin color and in fact probably a probably more people of darker skin are within lower social classes proportionally to their numbers. So yeah, they've come to plug that gap and turning what, what we should be doing on both left and right is turning much more, in my opinion, towards economic realities and away from identities. Mm -hmm. And um, because the left have been, or not just because, uh, I don't this is a chicken and egg phenomenon, but the, but some people on the left have been ignoring those economic realities in favor of identity politics, and now some on the right have created this very perverse um, weird identity politics um, of their own based on this idea of a sort of unified white working class. Some yeah, on the absolutely. far right and some, some fringes of the right. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say, I think your point uh, is very well taken there. And this is one of the characteristics that uh, you see in postmodern conservatism, that you see a lot of these figures talk about the people. In fact, Donald Trump was talking about CNN uh, being the enemy of the people, quote, unquote, not too long ago. Uh, but it's worth noting, of course, that they constrain their understanding of what the people is uh, very narrowly. And that's not a coincidence, of course, since what they're trying to do is suggest that there's some fundamental identity, uh, at the basis of the nation state. And this identity is the legitimate ruler of the nation state apparatus, and of course it's being constrained by all the other figures, uh, and entities and institutions in, uh, the political environment that prevent them from realizing their will of the legitimate people. And, When it comes to the issue of economics, I think that you make a really good point that part of the reason these right wing populist movements have succeeded is because they have been able to play to people's anxieties, particularly in the aftermath of the 2008 recession, in a way that many progressive movements haven't been able to do for a very, very long time. And this isn't to say that I think the efforts um, made by the new left, as it's sometimes called, uh, were in vain, because, for instance, I like the push for equality between men and women. I like to push for equality uh, on the part of LGBTQ people. I like to push for greater multicultural toleration. But that has come at the expense of taking care of people's more day-to-day concerns about how to put food on the table. Uh, the la- the New Left has been overly concerned uh, with these identity-related issues and not really focusing enough on how people put food on the table. And unless there's a movement back to that, and as I said, I'm optimistic that there has been some momentum uh, on that direction. I'm concerned that postmodern conservatism will be the future, at least uh, for the immediate, the, of the immediate future, because it's been better able to cater uh, to those anxieties than the left has for quite some time. Mm.
0: Yeah, well, I definitely think Trump will be elected again, but um, partly just because he's the incumbent and he, uh, the U.S. economy is doing well. Do you feel globally that, that the right is in, the, in a resurgent position at the moment? I think there's
1: no doubt about it. I mean, if you look at the major nation states of the globe, almost all of them at this point are controlled uh, or governed by some form of right-wing populism. Uh, you know, India, uh, yeah. the United States, Italy, France is certainly flirting with it. The United Kingdom is flirting with it. Brazil just elected, Jair Bolsonaro. It looks like Canada might be electing Andrew Scheer. Um, obviously, Marine Le Pen has been Danny ground in France, and a lot of Eastern the Europe, Philippines,
0: uh, yeah, the Philippines, Hungary, yeah, exactly,
1: Hungary, Poland, Russia. And you can't really deny the fact that there's certainly been a big shift rightward. Uh, but what I'm trying to analyze in my own work, of course, is the unique characteristics of the political right at the moment, because it certainly doesn't look a lot like what Milton Friedman or Project Hayek would have anticipated that they talked about a shift rightwards in the 1980s. What they were hoping was, of course, for a more economically liberal or even libertarian right uh, to seize power. And it did for a little while, um, but now we're seeing, of course, a very different kind of white man reaction, and that's what I call postmodern conservatism. And as you pointed out, the interesting thing is some of these figures are actually hostile to or at least more lukewarm uh, to traditional right-wing
0: economic policy. Right. And it also seems like it's a more protectionist right, whereas Hayek and, and the neoliberals wanted a globalized economy, right, um, where the state's job would be primarily to to facilitate um, as much free circulation of trade and money as possible, whereas Trump, for example,'s policies are much more concerned with setting up tariffs and trade deals that are favorable to the U.S. You know, it's a a wall-building policy economically as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that, again, uh, is demonstrated with the fact that conservatism is a complex and multifaceted tradition. Uh, A lot of people wouldn't even consider uh, neoliberals part of the conservative tradition, even though they might be considered part of the more broad right-wing uh, in politics, precisely because neoliberals really had very little good to say about the nation or about traditions, especially if those happened to be barriers to the installation of process of capitalization across the globe. Uh, and so what you saw over the course of the 1980s through the mid-2000s, of course, is the breakdown of a lot of the traditional national barriers uh, to things like labor, to things like the free movement of capital. Uh, certainly to the free movement of commodities, uh, which in itself can prevent a great deal of cultural change. And we're certainly witnessing a backlash to those tendencies at this point. It's unfortunate that's not the backlash that I was hoping for, uh, which would be more of a push towards a kind of Rawlsian social democracy. Um, but the fact that there is a backlash indicates at the least that there's a real hunger for political change that there hasn't been for a very long time.
0: Mm. So um, I'd like to get on a little bit to talking about what we can do to counter this resurgence of the right. And you have written about, um, so you have written uh, several pieces that I've read, really excellent pieces, which I will link to in the show notes, about partisanship and partisan uh, political argumentation. And one study that you cited um which was run by John Bullock, and I will link to that, was on people's perceptions of political facts. And this was a fascinating and quite dispiriting study in which Bullock's group gave people a set of questions for which there was a factual answer. There was a real answer. They weren't simply subjective. And, um, they asked people for their answers to those questions. And some of the answers um, would be favorable to the left and some favorable to the right. For example, there might be a question about relative levels of unemployment under Obama versus under Trump. That's obviously the kind of question which would, um, which has a factual answer. And that answer might be more flattering towards the left and it might be more flattering towards the right to give a An example of the kind of question. And people answered in a completely partisan way. And they also answered all of the questions with great confidence, like Argentines, when you ask them for directions, they always give you detailed directions, even if they have no clue where the place is. So, you know, people always said, yes, I know. And they always answered in the way that was favorable to their team, to their side. And then he offered to pay them money. And I think he paid them a dollar for each correct answer and 50 cents for every answer where they said no, they said they didn't know. And the number of times that people confessed ignorance went way up and the accuracy of their answers Also increased enormously, and the partisanship decreased, which implies that at some level people know that they are bullshitting, that they are just being, um, they're just fighting for their team, and they're not trying to actually explore and find truth. You know, this is my big quarrel with Ben Shapiro. I think he's no intellectual. He's not remotely interested in what the truth of the matter is. He just wants his team to win. It's um, all the title
1: of his book signifies that, right? Now, how to argue with the left and destroy them? Yeah, not
0: really, <laughs> yeah.
1: it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence that what you're aiming for there is a sincere dialogue uh, with somebody you disagree with, right?
0: Right. I mean, I always say he shouldn't be in the intellectual dark web because he's not an intellectual. I mean, not to say that he's stupid. He's an intelligent person who is completely committed to uh, partisanship. Um. But that's obviously a very widespread tendency, and Bullock's experiment shows that. So how do we, how can we get past that and create a more productive dialogue, especially those of us on the left?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's one of the great political questions of our time, and I certainly don't have any magical answers there on how to resolve the issue. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in my essays on the engaged left is the fact that progressives like myself and others really need to shift people's uh, perception of what progressivism is all about. Uh, Because as you said, rightly or wrongly, uh, a lot of people, when they think about the left now, uh, think about a moralistic, puritanical outlook that's very hostile uh, to reasoned argumentation. And part of this is because people like Shapiro or Stephen Crowder have done a good job of spinning the left that way. Uh, but there is sincerely a problem, uh, with a lot of progressives feeding into that narrative by adopting those kinds of mentalities, uh, and those kinds of tones, uh, when addressing people. So what I suggest in my article on the gay left, of course, is that we should have a lot more confidence in the ability of progressive arguments to carry the gay when we expose people to them. I think there's this sense on the part of a lot of progressives that while arguing is just a waste of time, because people are so biased and so partisan and so prone to embracing conservatism that all we can really do is is try to uh, antagonistically push for our policies and dismiss anyone who disagrees. And I think that's a very bad approach. We should be trying to argue, we should be trying to convince, we should be trying to know conservative arguments better than many conservatives do so that we can point out their flaws in a more accurate and analytically rigorous way. And those are just a few steps that maybe progressive intellectuals can take. If you're talking about the bigger picture thing about what left-wing activists and what uh, left-wing policymakers can do, I think there really needs to be a shift back towards more economic concerns that you were talking about, which doesn't mean, of course, that we should stop agitating for full equality for women, full equality for LGBTQ people, but that shouldn't come at the expense of arguing for things like a decent standard of living for all, or trying to resurrect trade unions uh, and increase the amount of power that they have to actually influence social policy uh, and workplace policy. And there are a number of other things that I can think about, but I don't want to know on about that. So
0: I, I think that there are two points here. One is, for me, I feel that it's always helpful to be inclusive and to broaden the circle. So when people are want greater equality in a more um Positive way. So they are saying, let's give more rights to women. Let's give, let's celebrate African American History Month or Black History Month or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely all for that. When the emphasis is placed on those we are attempting to include, when the emphasis is placed on exclusion, when it's let's cancel white men and cancel white yeah. women and we need to straight people are horrible and we need to get rid of these people and this this group of people are nasty that's that's when i object so it needs to be done from a positive expanding um standpoint rather than a ex- excluding standpoint which is exactly you know the identity politics of the right is about exclusion by definition these are who are the people who qualify as citizens of our country well they need to have these qualifications to have this skin color, to have been born here, to be to be contributing X amount financially, whatever it might be. It's a very exclusive form of identity politics. And so we need to champion the opposite and inclusive.
1: No, absolutely. One of the really odd phenomena that you saw with people like Milo Yiannopoulos, you don't hear much about him any longer, but he was a big deal back in uh, 2016. Is the way conservatives have actually been able to frame themselves as countercultural, even punk figures, uh, which if you think I about it, it's so antithetical to the spirit of conservatism, which is about tradition and religion and abiding by convention. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that, of course, is because the left has become so associated with this kind of puritanical, uh, and moralistic outlook. Uh, now I think a lot of that's unfair and a lot of it's spin, but there's some truth to that. And, one of the ways that we can start trying to appeal to youth again is, of course, by regaining a bit of that counter-revolutionary, or sorry, this uh, revolutionary spirit of inclusion uh, rather than this exclusive attitude of, well, we just want these voices out of here uh, so they aren't going to bother us, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. There is also, I think that um, part of this, of their ability to pass themselves off as punk rockers, although I think they always... Seem very very awkward doing that people like Paul Joseph Watson look like such complete dorks when they are trying to be hip and cool and I think that's part of Milo's downfall is that he just seems like such a prat um he's such an idiot but I think that part of that is because of this fragility or victimhood culture has led people to call for ever-increasing bureaucratization. And that makes conservatives seem like edgy, sort of um, independent, loner, thinker types, which is just ridiculous. But I think part of that comes as a reaction to things like at the university, students are calling now for more and more administrators. Instead of saying, we want to we want to change things here at the university. They're saying we want lots more administrators to come and tell us what to do. And that that is also something that I feel that we should resist. And I wanted to come back to the argument point again: that um arguing and debate has become this. On the one hand, the right have seized this trope that they are the side who like to debate, and it's this very debased sort of world of wrestling style debate that Ben Shapiro yeah. and people like that are suggesting. It's really not debate; it's not it's not really debate or discussion. In mo- in many cases, it's trolling. Um, I think someone like Jordan Peterson, who I also consider conservative is certainly debating. Uh, he is not a troll. Yeah. Um, I disagree with most of his political views, but he's not a troll. But it's mostly this very debased debating, which is just kind of trying to score cheap points and saying things just for gags and stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you want, to, sorry, I was going to say, uh, my a good uh, colleague of mine for Zero Books called Ben Burgess, uh, he's a professor of logic, uh, originally at Rhodes University, but he's moving now has a really good book out right now on this topic called the uh, logic for the left uh, mm. coming out in May 30th. So people might be interested in that. I will put that in the show notes. Sure.
0: Yeah, please. And it's also strangely um, when people on the left refuse to debate that again, there's this strange pessimism about human nature. It's, we can't persuade them of our point of view because they are just so greedy and selfish. Um, and that I I feel that that um, there there is a very widespread tendency of humans to be able to subscribe to enlightened self-interest. Uh, cooperation is also part of human nature. This is something that we were talking about last week with uh, Nick Christakis, Nicholas Christakis. Uh, that podcast will will have been released. Um, last Sunday, uh, for those of you who are listening now to this podcast today, so last week's podcast with Nicholas Christakis was about this, and this is also something that we can see from um, Steven Pinker's work, that we are able to move towards a more equitable system and there are good arguments we made in favor of in an in a system of enlightened self-interest of what Bill Mayer calls capitalism plus where you have a capitalist system for wealth generation but you have a welfare welfare state that helps those who are uh, struggling within that system so you have both a wealth generation and some safety net I think that I think that we can we can and should make a very convincing argument for that, which obviously won't convince everybody, but could convince enough people to bring the left back into power in more countries and ambits. I don't know if I'm making sense with this. but
1: No, absolutely, and I I agree 100%. I mean, this is one of the things that I was trying to capture uh, in my article on the engaged left, uh, it was what they, we tried to capture together when Gail Watts and I wrote our sequel to that. And I think that's also what Ben Burgess is trying to capture uh, in his book, uh, Give Them an Argument Again, logic for the Left. Of course, not everyone's going to be convinced by sound argumentation uh, because some people are just going to hold on to their views, come what may. Uh, but you can't, you can't unwise presume that nobody can be persuaded by decent argumentation, particularly if it's obvious that you're trying to have a debate and a discussion in good faith, and you're really interested in actually getting to the truth of the matter as closely as possible. And I think the left could actually be far better at doing this than many of these right-wing pundits, who, as you pointed out, kind of claim uh, the mantle of being the adults in the room who want to have an argument, uh, because I don't think they actually sincerely wish that. Uh, what they you often see, with few exceptions, like Jordan Peterson, who debated with Jerry Jack recently, Uh, is conservatives actually strawmanning their opponents uh, or dealing with caricatures of left-wing ideas and then dismissing them in the most callous way possible without actually getting to the substance of what they're saying. And to my mind, that's not really an argument. It's not even really uh, a kind of political act. It's really more of kind of a political theater uh, that hypes up your team and jazzes up uh, conservatism by giving it a bit of intellectual flair. And I don't really have much more respect for it than that, to be honest with
0: you. Mm, mm. I think you have more respect for it than I do, it sounds like, <laughs> um, because my respect for it is at quite a low ebb, I would say. I think we're coming towards the end of our time. Is there something that you feel that we haven't covered that you think is important to to stress to our listeners?
1: Sure. I'll just uh, end with this, I guess. We're living in a very exciting time right now where there are more political alternatives on the table than there have been for a very long time. Uh, I'd say at least since uh, 1989, possibly even before that. And obviously this is going to generate a lot of instability. It's going to generate a lot of anxiety. But we don't need to necessarily look at it exclusively through that pessimistic lens. But I also look at this as a time period where there's an opportunity to try to develop a much more just social order uh, than what may have existed before. And achieving that is going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of thinking. It's going to take a lot of philosophizing in some circumstances. But if we all put our our heads together, we might actually be able to come out of this better off than when we came in.
0: Thanks. That's a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt. And I will put all the links to your work and... To your Twitter handle, uh, Matt at Matt Paul Prof is your Twitter handle, and to everything else that we've alluded to in the show notes, it's it's been a pleasure. Oh, there is one final question actually that I would like to ask before I let you go, which is you are extraordinarily productive, and I want to know whether your parents took you to Gideon Prime when you were young and had you genetically enhanced, or what the secret is of your amazing productivity as a writer?
1: Well, I think there's two things. One is uh, you have to drink a lot of coffee. Uh, that really helps. Sometimes I have uh substitute that for beer if it's late at night. Uh, but Keeping yourself kind of energized uh, always helps out. Uh, the second thing is that you really just have to treat writing uh, like you would any other job. Uh, if you kind of sit there waiting for inspiration to hit you, uh, then you're going to be waiting an awful long time. Stephen King actually had some really good advice about this. Uh, in his book appropriately called On Writing, uh, where he said, you know, you read for four hours a day, you write for four hours a day. Uh, now, I don't necessarily hold to those numbers specifically, uh, but I think if you want to be productive, there's nothing more to it than, well, go out, read a book, read a few articles, get your mind going, then sit down in front of the computer or the typewriter or your iPad or whatever it is that you use and start pouring your thoughts onto paper. And if you do that, eventually you'll be quite surprised uh, by how much work you can get done Uh, and how much improvement you'll see actually in your work in a very short period of time.
0: Thank you, Matt. You are my role model in this. (laughs) And thank you so much. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant. Edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub editor yours truly. At Ario, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and two for T are entirely audience supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario A. R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you are listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.